Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Verdict Podcast. I am Linus Dio Lampy, bringing you the latest guests. I'm joined by my amazing co-host Edward Dempsey. Ed, say hi. Hello. Uh, hi. Today we have an extremely special guest. He is a venture capitalist. He is an extremely interesting person. And he's got many interesting stories and interesting acquaintances as well. So the word interesting is clearly a key theme. First, we want to just tell you about the amazing opportunities that Flamanc Law Society has for you as law students. Ed is the vice president and he is with us now. Ed? Flamanc Law Society offers great opportunities in helping provide information about future careers in the legal sector. It also helps build up your personal speaking roles through debating, mooting or negotiations. Any and everything that can get you prepared for the future job in the legal sector or adjacent sectors, if you so wish. But a brilliant society that does a lot of fun events, a lot of pub quizzes, a lot of, um, well, we can't really do a pub crawl at the moment, but pub quizzes um, <laughs> online. And uh, yeah, we'd love for you to get involved. It's only £10 membership. So please sign up. Love to see you there. The links for all that will be in the description at the end of the video. Tell me, are you a sad person who cannot seem to get in front of an audience and speak about a topic you love? Well, you are sad no longer because the Public Speaking Society has begun. It's hosted by Emmanuel, Patricia and Nana. They are good personal friends of mine and they are running a great society. So the links will be in the description for that. Please look. Now... To our guest, Stephen Norton. Stephen, do you just want to introduce yourself? Tell us what you do. Um, I'm Stephen Norton. I'm, uh, I run a company called Dayless Partners. Uh, we're a venture capitalist. Um, I've been doing this for about 10 years. Um, we've invested in everything from a tequila brand to a Michelin star pub to a driverless car business to a, um, one of the things we invested into a soft drinks brand. So almost anything at all. So we've spent a lot of time meeting entrepreneurs. Uh, actually, some of the entrepreneurs I met were in uh, your university who've set up a very successful company called Charged Up. A guy called Hugo Tilmouth was in Falmouth um, only about five years ago. And he's, his business is now worth approximately 50 million pounds. So if wow. you Google Charged Up, he uh, pivoted his business during the... Um, the COVID lockdown, and now provides hand sanitizer units under a brand called Cleaned Up for all of London Transport, for Diageo, and he's just raising another £20 million to, um, uh, to essentially develop his brand into Served Up so people can go into bars and restaurants and order using his proprietary software. But no, he's, it, was, it, was, it was curious and coincidental that he just happened to go to the same university as you guys. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned tequila, and I actually have the bottle here. Um, uh, Ocho. Ocho, exactly. Uh, I have dabbled in it, and it is uh, very smooth and very lovely, and many people around campus have tried it, and they love it. Um, so, Stephen, how did you become a venture capitalist? Like, what was your main, you know, kind of encouragement to, you know, pursue this type of career? I, I guess I'd, uh, I hadn't really... I didn't really have a very structured career path. I went to school in Somerset, went to university in Durham, trained to be an accountant, and then sort of saw very much where, where life took me. And life took me um, after a candidacy training into the film and TV business, where I worked at Channel 4 Television and Film 4 for about 10 years. and really enjoyed doing that. 
and then joined a film financing company where my career took me into financing as opposed to publishing, which is what um, Channel 4 did and film production. And then from there, um, by learning about finance, I learned about venture capital, which is sort of the interesting side of things, and built a network of um, funders, project originators to help me set my business up uh, 10 years ago, Daedalus. Mm. So you went to university at Durham. How was that? Did you enjoy Durham? Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I was I was living in Somerset at the time, so it was about as far away as I, I could get from home. So it was quite curious taking the, uh, mm. the train five hours to Durham. It's, it's changed a lot now, though, but it was, um, yeah, the best times of my life. Played a bit of hockey up there. Didn't really leave the sort of the city very much, but I'm going back. I go back quite a lot now to Newcastle as part of my job. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it's, I think it's different now. It was less, um, how can I put it? It was less vocational. It was more, it, it, it was more, um, how can I put it? Free thinking a little bit more. It was less structured. There wasn't, there isn't the same focus on, on this sort of thing. There was a debating society. There was a rowing club. Uh, boat club there was a strong cricket section where Nasser Hussein played Will Carling and Phil de Glanville playing rugby so it was it was pretty sporty mm-hmm. but it was a it was collegiate so you had a sort of a base at your college and then you had a base where you went to, to lectures it wasn't heavy in lectures it was probably about 10 11 hours a week everything was on mm-hmm. paper I'm 50 I'm not you know 90 but literally I went into the um into the university computer laboratory, which was sponsored by Deloitte at the time, to use Lotus Excel to give you some idea how fast things have changed. There was no email. There were no computers in the college. There was no Wi-Fi, no phones. So it was, it was quite different. And I think listening to other students I've met, it's, it's very, very different now, the, mm. the, the, the way of being assessed, the, the, the amount of information you can access. Yeah, days of queuing up at the library in um, in Durham to get books for a couple of hours to read a particular article are gone, I assume. And yeah, well, gone. yeah, they have here. We have online libraries and online access. It's it's shocking. Gone are the days of, of of reading paper. And what what was your first feeling? I mean, I talked to loads of uni students about this actually. When you closed the door to your dorm and you realised there was no parents telling you what to do, you know, no one controlling your life. You know, was the first feeling oh, I'm going to go out and get absolutely smashed, or was the first feeling a bit of fear and anticipation? I guess it was. Um, I've always been quite stoic, and so it was always like, well, this is what's going to happen anyhow. Um, everyone does the same thing. It wasn't new to me. My dad went to university in Oxford, and he was. And it was just like all my mates went off. We all we all disappeared all over the place, all, literally all over the country. And immediately you met people. You know, and everyone's very much on the same page as you at university. You know, it's it's the the most um, uh, cognizant and, and synergistic people you'll ever meet because they're in exactly the same place as you in their lives. They're the same age. They have the same interest. They've chosen proactively to do something. And the fable, the fable that you meet your best friends of your life at university. Do you do you believe this to be true? Well, it might that they they sort of had a, what they call a matriculation, I think, ceremony, which obviously they can't do now. But you you basically went up into Durham Cathedral and you sat there and they said a few words. 
and they said that half the people in Durham would meet their husband or wife there, which I thought was a pretty, you know, mm, yeah. everyone suddenly looked around a little bit and put it that way and became very nervous. <laughs> Did anyone catch your eyes, Stephen? No. Start pairing up. <laughs> Just start preparing your hit list. A lot of people, <laughs> there was, it was, um, and that, that statistic was probably right, looking at my peer group, um, that a lot of people, you know, ended up with people. But interestingly, sort of after leaving, they met them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Someone, they, they didn't really dabble with them during um, the university. Dabble, dabble with them. I love that. So. Dabble. Uh, yeah, that's interesting you say that. Um, uh, you know, I think some people find that quite daunting, being told, you know, that your your future life partner could be in the same room. And what was, what was the pub culture like there? You know, like, explain to us just, uni nightlife because it's something that everyone is interested in at the moment because obviously the freshers don't have it and the second years have lost it so i'm sure it'd be very nice to hear some stories of the uni nightlife i guess for me because i played hockey for the university there was there was a whole scene going on there which was quite um how can i put it it was based around playing games and then going out and socializing Durham was collegiate as well so every college had a bar and then there was a students' union with a bar. And Durham City is a strange sort of place because at the time it was in the midst of um, sort of post the miners, um, sort of clo- mines closing down. So there was a lot of people would come into Durham to party on a, on a Saturday night locally. And the students and the, uh, um, the locals never really mixed. It was quite a strange sort of world. So in terms of going out to local pubs, there, there were there were pubs, but that, that really wasn't the scene. The scene was very much about the college bars. Mm. And the college bars were sort of, um, you know, had their own identity. One was in a castle. One, there were new there were new student um, colleges, um, and, our, and our own um, college had its own sort of really nice bar. But there was then there was the hockey, and then there was just other things. You would always meet people at different places, and each of the colleges would put on an event sort of they would sort of almost rotate semi semi informally. So there would be a, like a disco or a, you know some form of ball. everyone was really into balls, dressing up in dinner suits. Yeah. Stuff doing that. But it was <laughs> fun. Uh, but now I, I don't know what it's like now. I mean it's it must be pretty yeah. pretty poor because um, I've yeah. seen pictures of those of the students in Newcastle and um and Northumbria University and I've seen them in Liverpool. It looks Yeah, I mean, we're 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 quite lucky because we're in the southwest, which hasn't been locked down to the extent that they have. But yeah, looking at the university, well, Manchester had a lot of their um, student uh, uh, pools locked down. I know a lot of people that have got affected by that actually, and it's very, yeah, very <laughs> scary times for them, I assume. Yeah, you've got to figure it out, haven't you? Whether it's worth whether they should have just stopped for a year, and yeah. I'm not sure that would have really helped. It would have just put more pressure on the system. Then there was the debacle with the A-level results, which meant I, I assume there are a lot more people here at your university anyhow, as, as they were sort of weren't turning people away, made their grades. So, yeah, I feel a bit sorry for you guys. I mean, I, you know, when I did it, it was it was brilliant. You know, you just <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything better to do. I mean, that was, yeah. but again, you know, it was all it's all part of a like it was a pretty it was a pretty well well trod route what I did which was to go to Durham and study accountancy so it wasn't like 
I, I was breaking boundaries. It wasn't like Hugo, who, who was at Falmouth, who, who I talked about earlier, who'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And he ran a DJ business when he was in Exeter doing um, booking DJs out to student sort of gigs. That, that, that thing didn't exist when I was there. It was all about there was a milk round and literally hundreds of companies would come and, and, and interview literally and try and get people to come and join them. It was quite, it was very formulaic. There, there, there's a lot, there seems to be a lot more flexibility now at the end of it for you guys. Yeah, it's harder though now. It's harder. You know, you, you've mentioned, you know, uh, companies coming in to kind of interview you. That, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, companies come in to do a speech to you and then you approach them. And they basically, um, you know, 90% of the people that apply get cut and 10% get in. Like it is so competitive, so brand orientated, so socially media run. Well, where does social media come into your your work? You know, specifically LinkedIn, because a lot of our you know listeners will be using utilizing LinkedIn. Oh, I've got a hundred connections. Oh, you know, what what does this mean to you? It means nothing to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, because um, it, it's almost LinkedIn's become a sales tool, so people sell you things on LinkedIn. So mm. you know, there's probably lots of good reasons. To, I, I like LinkedIn because I know if I meet someone um, in real life or who I've been introduced to or connected to that I know who they know. But when you see people who are, um, you know, trying to sell a some sort of, they're always trying to, people just try and sell you stuff and try and get you on the phone. You know, people now, you know, they, they even try and sell stationery to you on LinkedIn. Or who's your stationery supplier? And of course, suddenly you're not you're not mixing with the likes of McKinsey and Bain and um, you know strategic sort of connect. It really is people who are just sitting down tapping away. I mean, you know, you put your school in, and suddenly you get a hundred people calling you. You put your university in. Oh, oh, I was you know I know someone who was there. Did you know them? And it's like, well, no, he was he was there twenty years before me. <laughs> you know, and it's like. So you get irritating people like Ed and I trying to invite you onto podcasts and sell your ideas. <laughs> but, it's, but I know you, you see, that's the whole point. And that's why. Yeah, well, of course, of course, of course. When, when I, whenever I meet people who want to raise money for stuff, I say, who would you really like to invest? And then they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, you know, if you're doing a, I don't know, um, an ice cream brand, wouldn't it be great if George Clooney was, was, was the face of it? And I said, well, you now need to figure out how you get in front of George Clooney. How you raise money? Do you see what I mean? It's, it's a yeah. we're looking at the same problem. So once you figure out that if you want to get a job at Linklaters or um, Freshfields or wherever it is, then you've got to figure out who you're going to get in front of. And then you go, well, how do I, how, how do I get to know that person? How do I get an introduction to that person? And well, a lot of the VCs now don't accept um, uh, people applying to them for funding. They say, just find someone who you know who can introduce you. Because if you can't do that, you know, fuck you, you must be useless. Do you know what I mean? You know, there are mm. these people who are, who are just desperate to meet interesting people. Mm. But if you can't find a connection in your group with them, then perhaps, you know, you're in the wrong business or you need to find someone who can connect you. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's Ed, why it's Ed, what, what do you think of this LinkedIn, LinkedIn debacle and, and, and all well, about what's yeah, uh, said? <laughs> the, the way you've described it sounds a bit like... Um, it's sort of like six degrees of separation. You've got to work out your best route to find whoever. And it seems like this whole game of connections, which quite a lot of people might not sort of like understand in the sense that 
they just connect with as many people as possible but don't do any strategic thinking behind mm. it. I was just, yeah, I find that quite interesting from your point of view, obviously, having done quite a lot of them, um, having quite a lot of experience with companies like Channel 4 and then your own dayless uh, partners. It's, yeah. Yeah, I've had LinkedIn since I was, like, since it basically has been invented. I mean, I heard about it from... My dad, he was talking about LinkedIn one day and I said, oh, I, I want to be rich. I'm going to get LinkedIn. And then I literally just sat there and, and I was just connecting with everyone that popped up. And that is not the way to do it, um, which I've learned nowadays is you've got to really think about what connections you want for the field or industry that you're attempting to intercept or get into um you talked about you know we talk about linkedin but what about the old-fashioned way of networking Stephen? you know the the classic clients after dinner meeting people in london you know this is the the bit that students really dream of rather than having to go through all this linkedin rubbish you know what what, what do you think about that has that died now um well i think i think people when you, when you net, network, if you want to call it that, you need to have a purpose. A lot of people just want to collect business cards. And so I, I, there were some people who are really good at it, and I, it's not for me. So we, we used to share an office with a guy who would go to Farrah's, which is a big law firm, and he would come back with like 100, 100 business cards, and he would just chat and meet people. Whereas I, I was always happy just to sit in the corner and have one conversation. I, I also don't like standing up and talking to people. Um, I like sitting down. I, I find it difficult to engage, with, you know, with people jostling into you. But, but ultimately, it's all about connections. It's about being introduced. So we were introduced to someone um, last week who we met in London who represents a number of um, Cameroonian football players who play in the Premiership. And that was an introduction which was all about trust. Um, and it was all about them, you know, people meeting you and saying, you know, yeah, my mate said you, you, you're, you know, you're not gonna, you're gonna be fine, and and that's what it's all about. And, and I think that that's the, that's the skill which which you develop, which young perhaps younger people don't understand that that introduction is actually really really valuable, and you can't cock it up. So three or four of my friends have got me to introduce their kids to people that I know, and all of them have fucked it up. Um, yeah. they've, they've not returned phone calls or, or, or have and it's been like and the problem is of course it's a quite a big favour for me to ask someone I'm working with to go can you give him a job and they go oh I'd love to just get him to call me and, and then it was like oh he hasn't called why hasn't he called you and I'm just like oh, you know yeah. and he's like well um, and, and of course it's really embarrassing for everyone but I think it's about if you're focused and you know what you want to do like, like there's this driverless car business in Oxford you know the, the guy's another example he said to someone what do you want to do and he goes i just want a job for the summer which was like shit do you know what i mean it's like well he has 150 people applying for placements on his thing and so ultimately unfortunately it comes down to who you know and that's yeah. and that's really it's not very there's no meritocracy and all of that it's um and, and some people are good at connecting people you know people are good at networking but the problem is that um, you know, you can pay people to do that for you, but yeah. then you have to figure out how valuable is that. So if someone opens the door for me into somewhere and I get made loads, make loads of money, how much of that should I give that person? Yeah, I think the problem in, in society these days is I, um, Alec Baldwin talked about it on an episode of Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. He said that 
people these days, especially comedians, they they think that there's a you know a talent commission that's going out and knocking on people's doors and going, I heard you're really talented. Do you want me to make you rich and famous? That's not how it works. Um, I think that people have to learn to sell themselves because especially the modern generation, they set up a LinkedIn account or whatever. They go, oh, daddy knows this person. Daddy knows that person. Daddy will put me in contact with this person and I'll get a job. But even if you have the connections, what you, you've just described to me there gives me the you know, the vision that you have to sell yourself as much as possible and explain why you've chosen that person to network with. You know, what is it about driverless cars that interests you so much other than just saying, oh, look, mate, it's just a summer job. I just want to rake in some cash for a summer. Is, is that what you're trying to say? You have to sell yourself and give the employer a reason to want to hire you rather than just saying, I've got these qualifications. I, th- I think you have to have a, um, a, a narrative, we call it, when we, when we fundraise you need a narrative and everything needs to be consistent with your narrative. So if you're raising money for a project, then the narrative all needs to be consistent from who your co-founders are, who you're, who you're speaking to, why you're speaking to me and what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. When you go and approach the driverless car company, you probably have one of two options. One is um, all I want to do is, is, is to get into programming driverless cars or two, I want to understand more about it. And I've got a a rotation of three different things. So the narrative is consistent. There's nothing worse than someone going, oh, well, you know, I just want some work experience. You know, it's sort of, that's too too broad now. You need to be saying, I want to learn about Mm -hmm. something. That's that's very valuable. That's very valuable information because I know loads of people that are applying for work experience at the moment. So that's really useful, Stephen. Um, Ed, do you want to interject here? Uh, I, I was actually just pretty. I was come pretty on, this content is a great crowd. You've got to yeah, I, I know, but I was pretty content <laughs> listening to what he was saying because it's all good stuff for the, my future and for the future of everybody that's listening, I guess. But yeah, no, I, I just think it's very. It's something that you maybe don't think about. Well, I, I know I haven't thought about as much, but yeah, you need to have a very clear sort of like plan of attack, but also um, a strategy to in- implement that plan in terms of work experience and getting it. And it, yeah, something I'm definitely going to take under advice now. But it's, it's, it's a precision as well. And it's, yeah. it's not, it, it, you have to be a natural, you know, you, you, you know you, you're both find it easy to talk, but it's like, what you can't sort of do is you, is you don't want to be talking to people early about stuff. You know, you have your moment with somebody. You say, yeah, I'm all in, you know, let's, you know, mm-hmm. can we talk about how we, how we do this? And then you're fine. Whereas if you're going, well, I've got to speak to this, this chap on Friday about something else. Yeah. And there's just, you know, it, it becomes confusing and you just need to make, you need to sort of figure out which bus you want to be on. Otherwise they, they may all arrive at once mm-hmm. else it becomes incoherent. Yeah. So let's continue the the the, the Stephen Norton fable. Um, so you, you you come out of uni, you you got your full of beer, full of fun. You've got your you've got your degree. Uh, you then move into the film industry and the, the Channel Four and, and Film Four. You were mentioning. How did you come to that, and what inspired you to kind of get into that industry? Um, how I got into it. It was I, I was doing a bit of work when I was trained to be an accountant with a film company. I was valuing a film library. And it was really interesting. Um, it was, it was, it was in nineteen ninety-seven, I think, ages ago. And that there was a film called Absolute Beginners. There was um, the Mona Lisa. It was a film with Bob Hoskins. 
um, Stephen Rea, and there was a company called Palace Pictures. Palace Pictures were in some financial difficulty and were trying to raise money off a film library. Um, I really enjoyed just the whole experience of working around creative people, and that sort of set me down a path where I worked for um, a family office who owned a film company called... Um, What's it called? It was called Revcom. Revcom owned a, a French film library, included the original version of Dangerous Liaisons in French. Oh, right. Brilliant. Brilliant. With John Malkovich. No, no, the original. There was a 19... 19- oh, the original. Oh, right, right. Okay. There was a 1950-odd version in French. And um, they, they had made strategic investments and they had an American subsidiary. And then I met... They also owned British Pathé News, which owned all the old film archive. Yeah. Uh, and um, through that I met someone um, and over a few pints he took my CV <laughs> and there must have been a Guinness um, circle on the CV and he gave it to his wife who was head of programme finance at Channel 4 and I was I literally went for an interview the, the next week and it sort of that took me into Channel 4 and Channel 4 mm-hmm. was a, a super duper place to work it was amazing brilliant you know, you, it's almost, uh, you know, what, how old was I? I was probably about 26, 27 working there. Whereas I think now the idea is you go and get those, those good jobs immediately. Whereas I'd spent five years almost preparing for that move by training to be an accountant and getting some sort of background experience before approaching them. You know, it's a very mm. difficult uh, entry point. I mean, some of the people who are runners at Channel 4 were people like Dermot O'Leary. He was making coffee for people. There was um, Andy Peters. He was a commissioning editor. He's a very funny guy. He used to live around the corner from me. Who else was there? Um, ben, someone. Ben, who's on, the, who's on one of the Big Brother shows. He was also making coffee for people. But it's an incredibly vibrant place to work. But again, that they're looking for exceptional people to do stuff, and it's it's very difficult to enter these companies. Um, mm. So yeah, so I worked there and got involved with everything from um, the madness of King George, train spotting, for Wellington a funeral, um, Chris Evans doing um, uh, TGI Fridays, uh, everything from doing stuff with Armand Animations, poker shows, we did a late night strand. Uh, bought mm. friends, met Jennifer Aniston, filmed a concert. Um, yeah, it was all, it was all wow. good stuff. It was, it was good, you know. And I was, I was at the perfect age to do it. It was, it was great. Um, what do you um, think about Stephen? Ed is he, is he a possible gold yeah, mine for guests? Yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it literally really. sounds like you've got just connections. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to get them off him. We're going to get them off him. Yeah. Um, Stephen, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned, you know, I met this person. I met that person you know really resonates with the the networking conversation we had um, what, what did you do with train spotting because I, I i like train spotting i think it's a, a fan, fantastic film uh, what, no, what was I mean, your involvement in that i was simply part of the of the, of the group which helped finance together so, so um, channel four is slightly odd that it's not a it's not a production company it's a publisher so channel four the only show it actually makes is the new is um is channel four news no, no, IT, ITN make that. It's, it's, there's a, a, like a points of view show, which it makes. So it doesn't actually make anything. So it subcontracts to different, different parties. So a lot okay. of what Channel 4 do is pull things together. So essentially during my time there, I worked in 
over different strands being responsible for the finance of it. All right. So that's that's where your finance kind of began. Your you know not accounting because there's there's a fine line between accounting and what you do. I think we have to make that clear now. But why did you find it you know kind of disappointing that you'd moved from not being an accountant into a different kind of area, or were you like, okay, this is an opportunity. I'm going to take it and just see where it goes. So, 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 so essentially, at some point, you, you have to figure out what you're good at. Yeah. Um, and you can be, a, and I know some people who, who I know now who are excellent accountants and they, and they've got jobs doing the most wonderful things all over the world. They, they go to Africa and audit um, NGOs and, and charities and Bill Gates's foundation doing really And, uh, and finance directors for like Label M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we have to do a good slot as well. Um, so, um, but then you realise that, you know, you, you're, you have different skills. Some people are good at project management. Some people are good at pulling things together. And some people are good at being like um, supporting people with different with a different talent base. So I felt I was always quite good at supporting people with very strong creative drive and ambition. And so helping those people, you know, make things happen. And that's sort of what I did at Channel 4. Having the being a trained accountant is really handy because you can look at stuff really fast and you can go yeah this is fucked isn't it or no this looks really good without having to like you know scratch your head a little bit so i find it very easy to look at numbers and that's what it teaches you in the same way if you study law you can look at a contract really fast and go that indemnity or that warrant or not sure that's quite a long that's quite a long time i'm committed to this Mm. and so you you can look at it fast and looking at things fast you get to the, the problem faster and then you can solve it. And that's where all the energy is, not, not getting to that point, because it can be really tedious getting to that point. So I guess at Channel 4, for me, it was all about helping, you know, as part of a team, you know, ultimately under a, a creative person to, to, to make that all happen. So one of the guys I worked with was a guy called Stephen Keane. He was um, uh, used to be the editor of The Guardian Guide. And he was one of the original um, editors at Yahoo in the U.S., and he'd come to the to the UK to produce sort of cutting edge TV on a low budget, and we did all sorts of really weird things. If you uh, go on to um, More Four, you can watch uh, what's it called, The Journey, which was a show which was um, I've actually got a credit on it, which was about cutting house music to pictures of NASA footage. So the idea is you would come home spaced out after a night out on the tiles, and you'd pop on the TV. And there'd be all this NASA footage with this sort of really funny, funky music going on as you help you relax and come down after whatever it was you were drinking or eating. And so, yeah, it was just different. <laughs> yeah. But it was Excellent. all about changing television because television at the time, there was, I think Film 4 was the first terrestrial sort of second channel. Channel 5 had only just launched. So it was, yeah, and then, then E4. But the idea of how can I put it, of making TV non-linear. So the first yeah. thing they did was kept repeating the same film over and over again in different slots mm. rather than being on demand because the technology for on demand was, was, was difficult. And ultimately there wasn't the capacity of bandwidth or the, or the users to, to take that, that feed anyhow. Mm. Ed, well, what, what, what's your experience with Channel 4 and uh, E4? Do you, you are, uh, no, I'm, I'm a 
Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I I know they had the Big Bang Theory on there for a while, and I know it's not what everyone likes, but I personally quite like it. And um, yeah, yeah, because it's quite interesting. uh, I'm not going to say I know too much about TV and film back 20 years ago, whatever. But um, yeah, I wasn't really aware of the fact that Channel 4 didn't uh, make their own things. They sort of subcontracted out and then got other people to produce them. I find that quite interesting. So at the moment, there's a debate about whether Channel 4 should be sold or privatised. So it's owned by the government, effectively, through a trust. And um, the idea was of Channel 4 was to uh, essentially create diversity in its, its output. So there was a lot of multicultural religion, current affairs, news. And also there was um, the idea of creating an independent production sector in the UK. Yeah. Hence, that's why it didn't make its own programmes. Oh, right. Interesting. And then, so, so once you sort of like finished your time at Channel 4, what did you go on to then? How did you sort of like progress your career from that point? Um, then, then I was, I think I was about 30. And when you're 30, you have all sorts of decisions to make and you, you're looking <laughs> where you are. And I was having a whale of a time. You know, I was, I was, I was the youngest person in this department of 35 people earning really good money. Um, there was amazing social scene, like you, like you wouldn't believe. Um, oh, describe it to us, Stephen. Yeah. My, my favourite story was one of the Channel 4 parties, and they decided to do, like, um, I think it's S&M, where, where the theme was all sort of, you know, like chains and people in black leather yeah. and stuff. <laughs> and it was, it was just surreal. And, and people got really into it. Just whatever anyone did, it was always very... You know, there was it was always very entertaining. There was lots of very funny people knocking around, and that was, you know, if you, have you ever listened to Henry Rollins? No. Henry no. Rollins is a, an ex MTV rocker. He's also also what they call an urban poet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Google Henry Rollins, and we did a show with him once, and he was very, very amusing. Meeting Prince's lawyer, you know, the or was it the artist formerly known as Prince? Uh, getting into a tangle about what he wanted to be referred to. and Yeah, he wanted to be referred to as a symbol, didn't he? He no longer wanted uh, to be yeah. called Prince. He wanted just a symbol. Uh, the artists, uh, yeah, and so they can be quite nuts, but if they weren't nuts, they wouldn't produce what they produced. So, Stephen, we've had the Channel 4 fable from you. That's brilliant. And so after that, you ventured into venture capitalism. Am I right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Brilliant. Do you want to explain, as as you know, as someone who is a venture capitalist, what venture cap being a venture capitalist means, what it is, what it involves, just really briefly. So, so, so I guess um, venture capitalists, venture capital is a form <laughs> of finance, um, and finance is for companies which are starting up or are in an early stage. It's as simple as that. So the risk is very different, as is the return. So the idea is you invest, um, you can invest in bonds or gilts, and you might get a return of 3%. If you invest in public equities, you might get a return of 6%. If you invest in venture capital, you're probably aiming for a return of an excess of 20%. Okay. And that's, that's the game. The game is complicated because... Um, you try and invest in a portfolio of companies, some of which will fail. Um, they may yeah. all fail. So you're, you're it, it's, it's, um, it's like betting on a, on a horse in a race at 20 to one. 
rather than on the favourite. And that's that's very much what venture capital is. So there are mm-hmm. some famous venture capital firms like Sequoia, who backed Facebook, um, you know, companies which have backed Twitter. Um, you know, there, there are loads of LA-based, LA, San Francisco-based venture capital firms who have backed some of these massive companies of late. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the UK, there are... There's, there's a similar ecosystem. The, um, there, there, are, there are lots of companies who, who make good money investing into startup businesses. Uh, mm. Graphcore, a Bristol-based company, I think, was made a lot of money for quite a lot of venture capital investors. Yeah, Ed and I, while, while you were away, we were talking about Dragon's Den, and we were trying to compare it to what you do. Is that appropriate? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think... I mean, we, we, we know that we know some of the people around Dragon's Den, and it's um, it's a TV program after all. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but, ultimately, but the idea that you're basically investing in an idea or a starting business to then you know weighing up that risk and reward. You know, the risk is higher, but the reward is also higher as opposed to investing in, let's say, government bonds or you know, the stock market. Yeah, it's fundamentally Dragon's Den, um, except Dragon's Den has, has a slightly strange, um, there's one idea with potentially six investors, whereas obviously in the, in the real world, you, you, don't, you don't sit in front of six people, you don't, you don't, you don't aggregate investors like that, it, it doesn't really work. I mean, occasionally there are these, these evenings where people come and pitch. But again, most of the things that we invest in, we, we get through our network. So we, we receive very few unsolicited things that we end up investing in simply from a, um, from a due diligence, from a risk perspective, that we don't want to see our investors lose their money by investing in things which potentially is, how can I put it, um, lacks some integrity. So if you okay. if you originate things from your own network, it's much easier because you've already validated quite a lot of the risk away by it being introduced to you. We get referred a lot of deals from lawyers. So um, Cameron McKenna refer us deals. Um, what's the other one called? There, there are a number of law firms who, who will refer deals to us, and lawyers are quite good at sniffing out uh, people who who aren't you know all they say they might be. And lawyers also get paid so. Lawyers are really good at, you know, identifying people who, who, who are, you know, substan- substantive, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so can we do a little um, activity, like a little venture capitalist activity? Ed and I are going to pitch you an idea about a podcast. You're going to tell us what you would look for from a startup business, you know, what you'd look for them to prove what you would look for them to provide you with, so information like on their idea, on their tax or whatever. And we just want to see how that would work practically. So Ed's going to start by pitching your idea. Go on, Ed. Well, I think it's probably best if we base it on this podcast, something that we've already sort of started working for. So we've, uh, we're a joint partnership with Mac Law Society, actually. So we're not technically a part of them, I don't think, but they've given us funding to run this. And um, yeah, we've already had... Uh, three guests on and we've got about six hours worth of footage already so we've got footage we've already got um a decent social media going uh, i know at the moment 
we've got about 130 followers on Instagram. We've got quite a lot of subscribers on YouTube. So it's there's already interest in the podcast. We've networked ourselves to get people interested in it. I think this is where Linus comes into the sort of like yeah. big that side of it. So Ed's talked about what is happening now. Now I'm going to talk about potential which is what someone like you in, in your industry would be most focused on. You know, we don't see limits with this podcast, okay? We have a USP that is, we are not a podcast that interviews and grills guests. We're a podcast that has a chilled, relaxed kind of chat, but at the same time implements, you know, academia, societal issues, and heavy topics. So what I'm saying to you is marketing is at our forefront, and by marketing, we'll get this podcast out there. We're getting advertisement we're getting everything you could possibly need to be a successful business and a successful brand and the only thing you've got to be really asking is why haven't you invested in the verdict podcast that's our pitch <laughs> so the, there's different ways of looking at this um and, I, and we um support virgin uh, you know um which is branson's company and they run an incubator for startup businesses and we normally see we help people um, refine their pitches. Uh, I guess the, the, in reverse, what, what you need to do is you need to make me worry that I'm missing the next big thing. So you need to create FOMO, you know, and that's the thing which you haven't done. Um, mm. You know, I'm not worried that, you know, if you said to me, oh, there's this, there's one of my mates who's pissed all the time, he's in, he's in the laboratory and he's got this AI drone which will which will go into my eye and, and, and make my sight, you know, I'll be like, you know, let, you know, let me add him. Sort of thing. <laughs> you see what I mean? Whereas, yeah. you know, it's, you, you've pitched something relatively generic. Mm. Um, I mean, to give you some idea, the, 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 some, of the, some of the pitches we've had, you know, the sort of people we see, it, it's also, it's sort of, how can I put it? Um, I suppose the most the, the 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 earliest stage one was the guys from Exeter who came in and they they put this box on the table which was like a toaster and you put your battery into the box to charge it and then you take it out and you can return it somewhere else or charged up and we, we all were like you know we had massive FOMO with that one so you know we we we, we knew we would regret not having invested in it you know likewise the um, the, the driverless car pitch was um, these two guys bundled into the office who I didn't really know who they all were. And I, and they said, Oh, we're going to do it. We're going to build driverless cars. And I said, really, you know, don't, don't they do that? Don't Waymo do that? And all the big U S companies, they go, yeah, we've, we've built one already. And I was like, really? And the guy explained that he was, he used to, he used to head up um, formula one engineering at McLaren and worked at um, super Aguri. So he also is a team principal of one of the top Formula E team. And the other chap was employee five and Expedia. So you, you, you suddenly get this heavyweight sort of, oof, you know, right, okay, right, you know, you're not dicking around here. And I guess that's, so if you were to critique your, so ignoring all of the sort of those things, if you were to critique, you never told me how we're going to make, you're going to make any money doing this. Yeah, well that, yeah, that's true. I mean, it was just an idea I came up with like five minutes ago but it's a good idea to, to what, what 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 the what the purpose of it was it's interesting that you know to hear you talk about what you look out for when 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 you're when you're seeing a, you know a pitch or whatever and and creating the need creating the want 
basically saying that if this is something we don't invest in, we may miss out. So are you essentially saying that the key to venture capitalism and, and getting a venture capitalist to invest is basically trying to persuade them that if they don't invest, they're going to miss an opportunity that could cost them a lot of money? But if, if you think about it, um, that, that's, the, that's the end point you get to wherever you start up, isn't it? Yeah. You know, ultimately, that you, you, it's binary, you invest or you don't. Arguably, there's a level of what level you invest, how much of your pot you invest, and at what cost to you, what valuation to the company. But apart from that, yeah, you're, you're, you're going, you know, am I going to miss out? But also you're measuring up other things which are coming along as well. A lot of a lot of venture capital firms have much more have much narrower um, uh, criteria, investment thesis, objectives than we do. So some will only invest in life sciences. Some will only invest in university spin-offs. Some will only invest in consumer goods. Some will only invest in um, SaaS um, computer-based um, platforms. So there's quite some of them are quite narrow. So a lot of people won't get through certain doors because their their idea doesn't fit in. Mm. Um, the other thing you didn't sort of talk about was why you actually needed the money. Oh yeah, of course we don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's sort of, and that's what most that's what most people realise that you know if I sell, I'll give you fifty grand for half your company. You go, well, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Half, and then you go, but fifty grand's a lot, and then you go, well, what am I going to do with the fifty grand? And that's mm. the other thing you didn't talk about was what you were yeah. doing. Yeah. I, I was just going to ask, so like when you look to come in, so like want to then invest, how much do you need to know about the project? Obviously, you do due diligence and you want to be aware of what it is, but do you have do you go out of your way to just be completely and utterly so like knowledgeable about the product, or do you leave it to that and have a little bit of faith in the fact that it's going to work? You, you, you take enormous um, faith in the um, founder, and you and you and you just look at what they what they what they what, what they committed to it. Be it mm. time, be it leaving a good job, be it their own money, whatever it might be, their reputation. The the other thing you look at is how you can validate it externally in some way. So you know, you know, to give you an example, one of my school friends is um, was the chairman of Shazam, and he sold it to Apple. So he's always a good person to contact to say. You know what do you make of this? Likewise, um, we know a lot of people in the food and beverage industry who we can run ideas by as well. So, you know, being able to validate something externally is incredibly valuable. Or you can actually do, you can even go step step further and pay someone to validate it. So someone can come and have a look at the code, or someone can, you know, really, really not 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 the what's out of it. But ultimately, you're we invest early, so. Often these ideas haven't got traction. You know, they they may be even pre-revenue, but as soon as you start selling something, it's much easier to validate something. Mm-hmm. So, um, would you say you invest in people more than you invest in a company? So when you're when you're met with you know a pitch, if you don't like the person that's pitching, you're immediately going to be switched off if you think they're an arrogant ass or, or whatever's happening and you're just going to switch off would you say that 50 percent of basically your decision making is is your faith in the person you know faith in you know what you believe their potential is as a company runner or you know how would you describe your your thought process i think i think you know what, what we do is is 
if you imagine we're an early stage venture capitalist, almost like an angel investor, mm. and then there are venture capitalists who will invest in um, what they call pre-Series A, then Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, and, and as you as you go through here, you be, it becomes more institutional. So some of the venture capital companies, you know, have raised in excess of ten billion pounds to invest. SoftBank, who invested in Uber and um, uh, WeWork, I think they invested in Uber as well. I mean, they they, they drop a, million, a billion pounds in. So a, so what what I do is very different to what some other people do. Mm. But for me, I'm looking for someone who can take where they are now to somewhere with the money I give them to a place where they've increased the value of the company disproportionately. Okay. But that's what I'm looking for. And you're right. It's, it's almost always people-based. Do I, do I like the person or not? If they're arrogant and they're good at what they do and they, and they you know, that's fine, you know, let them get on with it. But ultimately it's all about integrity. Um, that, that's, that's the thing. And I think integrity is something which, some of the more millennial-based people we talk to don't have any of that they see that they see the investment world as a game. That if they mm-hmm. say the right thing, the money comes. But I, th- I think they, that that's a big mistake because you just end up in a in a tricky place at some other point when you say that contract you had with was actually only a conversation you'd half had with someone, and it becomes mm-hmm. you know it's, it's about integrity, and then. You know, hopefully we can connect people up with them to to, to 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 make it worth you know to work make it worth more. For instance, we've invested in a really interesting business called Cork C O R K Studios. Cork Studios um, maps all the influencers, and they they you can speak to Cork and you say I, I, I've got a, a podcast in um, in Falmouth and I want that to become big and I want get some get some influencers involved. And they'll sell you a subscription, which will allow you to access this massive database of influencers. I, I understand what you're saying. You've really sparked my interest with the word cork. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, but okay. yeah, but it, 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 sounds, it sounds brilliant. Um, but I, I was going to ask a question. I, I think it slipped my mind, but Ed, Ed can, I'm sure Ed's got some burning questions that he'd like to ask. Uh, well, just along the lines of, when you knew you wanted to do sort of venture capital and obviously you run where you're a part of one now, what was sort of like, do you remember that first meeting where you did that first investment, like the feeling behind that? Well, I guess we, we'd already teed up a couple of things in advance. So it was, um, you know, you're essentially um, aligning all the planets before we, before we started. So, we had quite a we had a very clear idea of what we were going to do from day one, and we had all the pieces in place. It was just about ex- extricating ourselves from various other things we were doing, and then mm. off we went. So we raised some money for um, uh, developing wind farms, which ended up being really successful. And then we raised some money for some London um, prime central London property sort of related transaction, which wasn't so good. And then we. Um, uh, what else? We, we did some video games that weren't so good. Then we did tequila brand was good. So, you know, it, the problem is it's it's a bit up and down, uh, and that's mm. the nature of the whole thing. Um, mm. What would you say? Because um, at, at Exeter, I know there's an entrepreneurs society, and I know probably most of them will be watching this, especially as we've got a venture capitalists on. What would your advice be to someone that is looking to be an entrepreneur and someone that could one day find themselves in front of you know a well-established venture capitalist like yourself? 
I suppose the, the things that I find is um, people try and speak to me too early. So, you know, th- there's no point having a chat with me because um, what, can I, what can I really do to help? Because I'm, I'm expecting that person to come with the, the white heat, if you see what I mean. Mm. It's like, you know, do you, would you be interested in investing in a... For, for a while, all I got through through my email were um, pet social media-y sort of things, you know, like dog walking and pet grooming, endless pet insurance. And it was like, you know, I'm sure your your dog one will be much better than walkie-walkies or talkie-talkies, but it's generic. And for me, it's I, I then have to go and sell what the investment is to my investors. And, of course, if it's generic, they're like, you know, they want things which are interesting, which makes make them exciting. Or they want the next best money. thing, not the thing that's currently happening and a recreation of it, if I understand correctly. Yes. So, so it's about it's about, in, it's about in, being innovative and bringing mm. something to the table. So, so you know, we, we spoke to a guy um, uh, yesterday, I think it was, from, from San Francisco, who has a great idea. But, but it's, I, I almost said to him, um, well, actually, it's a really good idea. I don't really need you, so I'll just go and, I'll go and do it myself. Again, you have to figure out what it is you're actually bringing to the table. And if it's as easy as me to listen to him speak for half an hour and go, great, I'll, I'll get 20 developers from Lithuania to design me exactly what you've discussed. <laughs> you know, but then, but that's, if you think about it, think about Ola and um, all those variants on Uber, think about all of the micro-mobility scooter deals. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there, there's no barrier to all of this. It's, it's a land grab most of the time. You know, if, 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 you as, if you just have an idea and you have no traction, you have, you have no runway with it, you know, you've not, not done anything with it, but apart from articulating it, then really what, what have you brought to the table? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I agree. Um, Ed, anything? Uh, you keep deferring to me, but I'm really just interested in listening to sort of like your stories in the industry right. and how you've handled not uh, adversity is not the right word, but the ups and downs, sort of like the peaks and the troughs of the business. Mm. Yeah. I just know when you get on the roll, Ed, you get on the roll, my friend. Um, anyway, oh, Stephen, yeah. just, to, uh, just to have a little break from the constant questioning, do you want to hop into the word association round? I think I've got about 10 words for you. <laughs> so I thought this, someone did this once, and I can't remember where it was. It was, um, it was in James Bond, wasn't it? Was it Casino Royale? When yeah, James yeah, Bond, you've changed your shirt, Mister Bond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he and he and he, and he, he did word association. He kept going about death and blood and guns. Yeah. And do you remember? Yeah, that? it was Skyfall. It was Skyfall. And M is uh, he's he fails his um, initiation test again, and he gets put into the field anyway. He does a, a word association test. Right. You know, the answers either you know kill, death, scotch, or sex. I think these are the only answers he comes up with. Anyway, I'm sure they'll be very different for an established man like yourself. So I'm going to start straight away. Money. Uh, success. Risk. A life. Mental health. Important. Education. More important. Networking. Um, necessity. Alcohol. Uh, fun and games. Oh, two words. Stock. Stock. Um, stock. Um, like in chicken soup or 
Whatever you want it to be. Oh, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Stocks, a strange word. Um, stock. Um, uh, uh, chicken soup. Yeah. Corporate. Corporate. Um, bigger. London. Uh, Centre. Investment. Um, I guess my life. Legacy. Um, death. Regret. Uh, none. <laughs> Charity. Charity or clarity? Charity. Charity. Um, uh, strategic. Capital. Difficult. Venture. Uh, beginnings. Venture capitalist. Optimism. Brilliant. Well, that was great. You did really well there. We've, we've, we've yeah. had some... We've we've done a few with guests, and then with there, you know, there are some slip ups for sure. But you know, you performed very very well there. Stop, uh, sir. I, I, I just Go wanted on. to pick up on a charity and strategic. I thought that was quite an interesting. Yeah, so did I. Was I was just about uh, to say that. Uh, so, so I guess um, we we we've become quite. We we were uh, we were doing a big um, uh, social uh, project project uh, business in Newcastle. Which is called the Moncur Group. The Moncur Group is um, uh, the guy who's the chairman. Is his, his name? His name's John Moncur. John was um, a Premiership footballer. He's about my age, maybe about a few years older. He played for Tottenham. He played for Swindon. He played for West Ham famously. He's best mates with Paul Gascoigne, uh, Harry Harry Redknapp. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's he's people describe him as the funniest footballer you ever meet. And he's always wanted to do a a social project, an investment, which we're helping him do. And I guess I've become the incumbent um, COO of this business. And the business is opening residential children's homes in Newcastle. And through that, we've been introduced to a number of charities in Newcastle. One of them is called Children's Northeast. Children's Northeast is the oldest, one of the oldest charities in the UK. And Children's Northeast is all about children. And they uh, famously, basically the kids were down the mines in the 18, late 18th, 1800s and they were taken to the seaside and that was charity. And it's become more and more strategic. That's why I use the word. So they talk about um, uh, what they call it, a hand, a hand up rather than a hand out. And it's all about making charity strategic and how you, how you get the most value. Uh, at the moment, the charity's spending a lot of time dealing with um, domestic violence cases, and there's a domestic violence um, helpline they've set up, which a number of very high-profile people in the northeast have funded because of lockdown. People have become stir-crazy, and obviously that hasn't helped the children who have been, you know, had to had to watch all of this. So that, that's that's sort of why I see. And I, and I guess friends of mine have worked at um, Friends of the Earth, which is all about bees and um, air quality around schools, which is quite interesting. And um, yeah, th th there's it's a very interesting area. There's a lot of there's a lot, lot of money money flying around in charities or some of the bigger ones, um, and yeah. and it, it's it's just figuring out you know what do you do. So, so Children's Northeast famously give um, um, school uniform and football boots to people to wear so they don't look out of place 
So imagine you go to school and maybe the kids who pay for their school lunches go one way and ones with free school lunches go another way. And that yeah. already creates uh, an issue for them to be, to be essentially excluded. And it's, you know, how do you make everything more inclusive? And that's a pretty, pretty big thing that Children North East does. So, yes, yeah, so, so that's, that's why I describe charity as strategic um, mm. and, what, and sort of listening to these people who do certain things and why they do it. But, but ultimately, all, all of the, the Children's North East charity work comes as a result of high levels of poverty, and poverty breeds uh, these issues, and that's a problem that isn't getting any better, and it won't get any better, I, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, because when you said it, I sort of understood why you'd said it and how charities do have to be strategic with, obviously, they get funding and how they spend it and how they best affect change in their like area, but it's... Uh, I don't think it's one that most people would have thought about. It's sort of thing it harkens back to you being sort of in the job that you're in and thinking about the best way to sort of like run it and get the most out of it. Just thought that was really, really interesting. I think that there's there's a lot of um, it, there's this whole thing called ESG, environmental, social, government. I think which is this yeah. whole fun choice thing. And I guess if if you if you kick off the prevalent points and you invest in things which are socially beneficial and, and you can, you know, make it tangible that you're doing it, then hopefully it will, it will, it will create its own momentum and its own commercial success. That's, that's ultimately the aim of it all. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, that people who, who are taken out of, out of homes because they, their parents can't look after them for whatever reason uh, find themselves more, likely than not to be in court um, at some point in their later life and be in prison. And that's not a, that's not a, an optimal outcome for society in any way at all, but it's, no, it's, it's big. These are big issues around poverty and, and how do you, and, and, and how do you take people out of that? And it's about being strategic. And I, I don't have the answer for all these things, but what little we can all do to help or, you know, just 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 to start doing something. I think it's a really interesting place to be. Hence the the John Monker or the football Monker group, children's care um, homes. We're going to start setting up uh, on a on a for profit basis, but in conjunction with charities and uh, local and the local council in Newcastle and South Towns Tyneside. Mm. Sorry for my absence. I had a technical difficulty, uh, but no, that 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 does sound um, very interesting and uh, strategic. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting that you know through your work and through your career, you seem to be uh, constantly coming in contact with a very varied and diverse bunch of people. Um, do you do you enjoy constantly having a new project on the run? and seeing it all the way through, or would you prefer to narrow your focus as your career, you know, develops even further? It's, it's a really good question. And I suppose it's, um, it, it's, it's a question which, which, which I keep coming back to as friends of mine have gone and done one thing. So that there's a big, um, you might even have seen the name Burrington Estates down in Exeter. It's a big property developer. Um, you might have seen some of their sites. And, and he was doing what I was doing, and he simply moved his family from Suffolk to Exeter, 
that set up this enormous, um, very strategic house build, which has been very successful. And he gets a lot out of doing that. Um, and I guess the, the concern is that you lose focus by trying to do too many things. So at the moment, we, you know, we have quite a lot of things on at the moment. Um, and we're looking at uh, two or three other things. And, and re realistically, you can only really do four things uh, at any one time um, in managing investments and trying to help and be strategic or strategic commercial, I suppose, to try and push it all forward. Mm. But yeah, so it, it's, 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 it's good fun when you're younger, I think, doing lots of things. But as you get older and you see the, the issues and, and you have more experience in terms of turning the um, energy to money at some point, then doing doing fewer and being more focused makes a lot lot more sense. Uh, unfortunately, I'm just going to go through a few audience questions just to uh, change it up a bit. Um, I'm just going to go through now. They're quite. I usually scan them first, but these have just come in, so they're quite fresh. Um, no, I'm not going to ask you that. Um, can I have a job? No, I'm not going to ask you that either. Um, what is your advice to? people running a portfolio of investment themselves and if you could give one piece of advice of companies you would invest in or the amounts you would invest could you give them just just give a generalized answer to that don't don't give specific companies because i don't want you to feel like liable if people lose a lot of money <laughs> so i guess um a traditional portfolio is excluding your own private residence and pension planning is approximately 70% of your money would be in a uh, discretionary portfolio managed service. So that would be stocks and shares. And you'd run it through, I don't know, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, JP Morgan, whoever. Then you have roughly 20%, which would be in, I would describe as assets, like, like um, property maybe, investment property or gold, all that sort of stuff. And the final 10% would be in alternative assets, which is what I'm talking about now. So you would do your own allocation. Uh, in terms of what we do, uh, our, our investments range from a couple of hundred thousand to two million. But I think our sweet spot is about 750,000 because 750,000 can take something from sort of here to here and you get a disproportionate uplift in value. So for instance, um, the money we put into many of our businesses is worth five times within a year because other people follow what will invest because they they've got on so much further does that make sense yeah so you know suddenly you've got two customers and you've got 200 that that that's so much more attractive to someone than the two and, and psychologically the value just goes up and up and up and that's what, what we look to do so hence um, yeah i've got two more uh, one of them is I'm an economics student at Exeter. I'm in my first year and I'm very much enjoying my studying. Do you have any advice for someone that is looking to become a venture capitalist or otherwise angel investor? Uh, this advice can range from networking ideas or work experience ideas. I was an economics graduate as well. So um, I think the so there, there are there are two two end, traditionally in the big venture capital firms like Three I, there are two entry points. One is when you're in your when you've got grey hair when you're fifty, or when you've just um, done your chartered accountancy exams. Um, life's changed. I'm trying to help someone at the moment get a job, and it's very difficult. Most of the people we see who 
um, our young venture capitalists in their mid-20s have actually done some form of entrepreneurial activity before. But that's exactly what's happened. Um, so they're, they're no longer wet behind the ears. So they've gone and set stuff up. They've run stuff or they've done stuff on their spare time. It can be anything from um, running, a, helping your mates set up a small group of coffee shops to, um, you know, to, to helping someone do presentations to, to just to be part of that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's how I see, you know, things working. So joining a startup, probably unpaid, to get experience in terms of learning to invest. I mean, there are, there are platforms like Cedars and Crowdcube. Why wouldn't you go and put 10 pounds on one company and invest a hundred pounds every quarter and see how your, how your investments do. Um, In terms of, you know, you know, my my experience was, you know, I'm a, I'm a qualified accountant and that, really helps me and what I do really helps me and being a lawyer also would help me as well mm. and I think it's about you know economics as, a, as an activity is really good for, for, for me for macro and also for understanding change at the margin about what people do so one of the examples I, I always give to people who pitch businesses to me is, is the pub example so we, we've invested in a Michigan star pub in Hackney and I've been there very nice the market yeah, it is isn't it? brilliant Brilliant. And it's run by a Michelin star chef from St. John's and someone who used to run 15 for Jamie Oliver. And people, so if I was to open a pub in my local area, then the pub would open. But then what's the dynamic of that pub opening? Does that mean that more people will leave their houses to go to the pub? More people swap their existing pub for that pub? And if people start swapping, how will the other pubs react? So you have to sort of sort of look at, at the margin, you know, what activity you're causing. So, for instance, you know, if you take an Uber or if you take an um, a, a electric scooter ride somewhere, then you may have taken a bus. So then the bus company's, you know, money will go down. If you're spending £6 on a burrito rather than going to your um, – your preferred fish and chip shop, then the fish and chip shop may start adjusting its pricing. So, so it's about fluidity and, and the idea that, you know, that markets do organically increase. But, you know, when, you're, when you have an idea, how do, you, how do you validate that people are actually going to buy, buy it? But even more importantly, what will, what will the competitor do to react? Mm. So it's all about basically looking at the macro economy and trying to you know use the theories and 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 what you learn to basically apply it to real world application no it's, it's, it's more about the micro it's more about so you know you're sitting there at home i'm sorry micro oh, no, let's say micro apologies no, um, no it's like you, you have you have like you have 50 quid in your pocket what are you going to do with it mm. and, and you know are you going to down are you going to pay for your spotify subscription are you going to pay for your disney subscription netflix subscription what's your you know what are you going to do and then if something new comes along you know will will you buy the next um, black and white french film subscription well if you do that then that means you swap out netflix maybe then netflix Mm. may lower its price and and every decision is like that in life you know you're making decisions okay well i think that's 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 good advice and the last question i've got a bit skeptical about asking it but i'm gonna ask it anyway because 
you know, what the hell. Um, it's just regarding what, it's a bit, it's really, really crudely. Um, but I'm just going to say, what are you going to do when you retire with all your slang word for money um, made from your investing? But remember that I'll have made money investing only if my investors make money. So I think that's that's a sort of a, it's, it's a quite strong corollary that I, I invest other people's money essentially into things. And then um, hopefully... I make them money, I make money. So it's, 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 I'm very aligned to the people I work with. But a lot of people, you know, who I work with, I've become friends with them because, again, they have very strong integrity. And integrity in business is really, really important. And, you know, we have a lot of fun doing things because I do know that at, at, at all times they, they have my back, and in particular my investors' back. So hopefully, you know, I'll do this for a, a good few years yet and then, at some point, you know, when I no longer want to do it, I can just stop and sit on the beach and South of France, yeah. Is that is that <laughs> is that is that where uh, Captain D? But you know, is that where where the the end goal is? But you know, again, you know, I, I know so many people, and it'd be nice to you know just to um, go and sit in a pub or you know help people do more socially minded things. I think it's really important mm-hmm. that you know that. When you, when you hear some of the stories uh, from children's, you know, from the children's care home world, it's it's really really brutal. And, and the more you can help, the more you can um, connect the dots. You know, you get enormous value from doing that personally and societally as well. Ed, um, have you got any questions? I've got one more for Stephen. Uh, one of my own personal questions, but I'd like to pass. Uh, them I'll, to I'll, I'll let you ask your question because I'm still forming mine. I think it might be a bit too far. To, but I'll let you ask yours. All right, brilliant. I'd just like to know, Stephen, at what point in your career did you see a significant turning point where, you know, any goals you had, any objectives in your mind, you felt like you'd actually made it? You felt like, I can be comfortable in life right now. I know that I made it to where I want to be. I'm not sure I've ever reached that point, but I remember when I was 25 and um, I met up with a group with quite a big group of people who were school friends, university friends, work colleagues, and we all sat around and it was astonishing the, 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 the different ways that life had taken us all. And I guess at that point you, I, I, you had to learn to be comfortable in what you had achieved else you would have gone mad. So, so one of the guys had had, traded since he left university and was swanning around in a Lamborghini another guy was unemployed another guy was teaching another guy was and so on and so on so at that point you, you have to grow up quickly and you have to go you know either you're in either you you're, you're you're an adult and you can cope with you know different levels of success or you can't as I said one of my school friends is, was the chairman of uh, and CEO of Shazam I suspect he walked away with tens of millions of pounds from that. A group of us met up and mulled over what we'd all achieved in the in the three or four years since we left university. And that range of people was from a, a very wealthy trader who was swanning around in a Lamborghini to an unemployed person, to someone who was teaching at a primary school, and, and a number of people like me who had embarked on the sort of the professional career paths. And I guess at that point, 
you know, you had to grow up and realize that there was always going to be a, a range of sort of economic um, versus social versus um, um, hierarchical sort of different differences in what everyone achieved over time. You either, you know, you either grew up at that point where you'd resent it forever. Um, you know, as I said, we, I worked with a guy who's a, who's a Michelin star chef who grew up with Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver's worth, what, 250 million pounds? He's not worth anything like that at all. And so, you know, either he, he ignores Jamie Oliver, his name, or he, he just, you know, accepts it's all, it's all good. So, yeah, so that sort of was, was, that, was the answer to that question around mm-hmm. whether, I, whether I really think I made it or not made it. But really, I think you just have to accept that you, know, you do what you can and you take advantage of things. When you have energy and momentum, you, you go for it. You don't, you just you know, plodding on a bit. But, but when, you have the, when, the, when you have the momentum, and momentum is a big thing in investing, that when you see a group, you've got good momentum, then you back them. So Brilliant. People are still, you know, you can see people have got momentum. It's really easy to spot. Mm. Well, thanks for that, Stephen. Ed, have you got any final points? Any thoughts? Yeah, you, uh... I've just got uh, actually it's a bit of a question. But so obviously, you said you basically invest people's money for them. Is uh, there's a sort of add-on to that bit, which I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer or not. But the first bit's just um, so how many people do you have investing through you? So like at any one time into one project, and then a sort of side off. That would be um have there ever been any situations where there have been sort of like issues with that maybe it hasn't gone as to plan as investors have had sort of an issue that bit you don't necessarily have to answer if you can't yeah i think i think there's there's a sort of um things that often don't work out as you would like um and i suppose you you, you try and work out at what point you pull the plug um because ultimately a sl- it's often better to give something that, you know, chop it, chop it away. Uh, and investors obviously aren't very happy and then they, they don't invest with you anymore. And you, you try and you hope they, their advisor or they be considered the 90%, the 10% and a bit of that 10% is going in with me. Um, we, we normally have between 20 and 25 people invest in every project we do. Uh, some invest anything from, Five thousand pounds up to five hundred thousand pounds, and there are a range of people from professional sportsmen to um, uh, people who work in the city to um, entrepreneurs, property developers. So it's, it's a complete range of people, but it, it's not. How can I put it? You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not looking to score a hundred pounds from people in the street. You know, it's it, there's, there's no value to me. It's people who you know, have, have got significant amount of, of liquidity and have thought about a strategy for do, dealing with this. So ideally, if you've got a couple of hundred grand, you know, you should think about maybe investing in maybe 20 companies. And that's your strategy, not not going, oh, I think this, this new ice cream is going to be fantastic. And then realise when you go into the shop, you, you'll see there was like 40 in Tesco's and you go, that's a pretty tough market, isn't it? And, and then you realise that it's all just shit that you've been sold, and you, you, know, you just need to be. It, it, what I what I always liken it to is the is the Olympic 100 meter final. Do you do you ever remember the guy who came in sixth place or the woman who came in sixth? You don't. You always you always remember the first three, maybe. 
Yeah. And that's what venture capital is all about, is sort of getting to the 100-meter final. Mm. Well, I think that's a really good point to, uh, to, end, uh, to end the podcast. Um, and, and I'd like to just thank you, Stephen, for that. That was yeah. really yeah. insightful, really brilliant. Um, and I knew you'd be a very uh, interesting bloke. We will, obviously, off-camera absolutely... Um, go through all your books and get all your guests and all your contacts um but that that, that was brilliant and and we here at the verdict podcast want to thank you very much yeah, it was for really great offering your time to do this with us thank you so thank much you. again See thank you, you. Bye. yeah so ed what did you think of that guest i thought he was uh, yeah i really thought he was really really interesting he gave a view on an area in society that i myself wasn't well versed in sort of venture capital it's something that gets bandied around a lot as a term i'm not sure everyone really understands what it is so after listening to that i'm now aware of sort of like how he deals with his day-to-day life and sort of how people can make money but in a controlled environment through investing in startups that genuinely can go somewhere so should we come to a verdict on whether you'd invest with him or not? Yeah, I'd invest with him. He's great connections. He seemed he was very, very switched on, very personable. I think, yeah, what you were saying about integrity is really what I think personally I'd look for in uh, any situation similar to that myself. Um, yeah, but well, I, I don't. I don't uh, no offense to Stephen, I wouldn't invest with him. But just because uh, right. I don't like, I don't like heavy risk um, based. Things. I like taking risks where I know I can win. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> that's I, not that's not a risk then, though. If if you yeah, know well, you can well, win, yeah. it's not a risk. Yeah, no, I make I make my own luck. Um, but no, I thought <laughs> I thought he was a really uh, insightful guy, and, and obviously he's a he's a close family friend of mine anyway. But uh, it was really interesting to hear him talk, you know, about his business in in such depth that I've never heard him actually talk about it. Um, so yeah, we'd like just to say that Flamank Society is available on... Uh, on only on the £10. Pounds, only very, £10. very reasonable price. You know, instead of investing in a, in a balanced portfolio, why not just invest in your future, in your career, you know, exactly. with Flamank Law Society? Where else are you going to be able to debate, moot, negotiate, and get advice on a future legal career? Mm. I'm going to talk about mooting now, actually. I've got a question to ask you, the audience. Are you the next... Harvey Specter, are you the next Michael Dershowitz from LA Law? Well, the only question you've got to answer is, am I ready to be? Because if you are ready to be, all we have to do is sign up to Flamank Law Society and get the next opportunity to be in moot court and express your advocacy skills to real judges. All you have to do is contact Anton Doyle. He's a very approachable guy. He's linked into the verdict Instagram page and his email will be in the description at the end of this video. Please stay tuned and wait for our next guest. We have got so many more interesting guests coming on and we are hunting for the big names. We are The Verdict Podcast and this is Linus Leo Lampy, the Triple L signing off. Thank you very much. This is Ed Dempsey signing off. Thank you very much.